Hello everyone, welcome to SWIFT Unscripted. I'm Amy McCart, the co-director of the SWIFT Education Center. Today, June 18th, 2020, the eve of Juneteenth, we have the honor of welcoming Dr. Dennis Carpenter to our show. He is a leadership and research director at the SWIFT Education Center. He is a community organizer and leader in the field of equity. Welcome, Dr. Dennis Carpenter. Absolutely, we're super excited to be here. We come to this conversation deeply impacted by the loss of more Black lives, and these are not isolated situations. This is part of pervasive and systemic racism in the United States. Why is that important for people to understand? It's very important for, for people to understand. There's a lot of hurt. Centuries and centuries of, of hurt centuries and centuries of disenfranchisement. And as we think about the moment that we're living, the living history that we are part of now, we wonder if we're on the cusp of some change. And it's very important because there are lots of intersectionalities associated with the experiences African-Americans have had in these United States. And we honor those intersectionalities. But even when we think about said intersectionalities, we know that in each of those categories, the African-American experience is always disproportionately worse. So we're tired, whether it be as professionals, whether it be as community members, whether it be as parents, the African-American community is tired and we hope that we're on the cusp of some level of change. Is there a fear or inherent worry that this time it won't, it'll be just like the other times? Absolutely, absolutely. You want to be optimistic, but unfortunately, the lived experience of Black America has taught us to be cautiously optimistic in this moment. When you see the number of statements that have come out from organizations, from companies, from big business to small business, and there's this support that wasn't there in Ferguson during the time of Mike Brown as it relates to Black Lives Matter. So when I think about your question, Amy, what comes to mind is when Nike puts out a statement and then Ben and Jerry's puts out a statement and then a large nonprofit puts out a statement and then one university puts out a statement and another. The cynical side of the African-American community from my perspective says, is this about truly honoring the fact that this time we have to get this right? Or is this white America and their desire to always remain in solidarity? So is this more about white America remaining in solidarity in this moment? Or is this really about systemic significant change in the black community? And that's why we remain cautiously optimistic. What does it mean to get it right? That's a big question. But getting it right, I think, has to begin at the policy level and at the systemic level. We can no longer be satisfied with 
incrementalism as it relates to the challenges that African-Americans face across all sectors. It's no longer okay for one or two or three African-Americans to emerge and be held as the standard that there can be success. What we're looking for is systemic wholesale change that honors the years and years of being left behind that our community has experienced. So getting it right means something systemic and something that's sustainable long-term. The death of George Floyd and so many others is tragic, wrong, and devastating on every level. It's important to acknowledge that this is part of a much larger problem. And so when a black educator is on their way to school and stops for a cup of coffee or a black student is driving to high school and needs to get gas, there's a consideration at every stop about what interactions will transpire. And that is related to these deaths that have occurred. African-Americans, unlike their white allies or their white friends or any person who's not African-American who stands in solidarity with them, the difference is we never get to shed our blackness. And we know that in too many cases, there's a universal response in America related to our blackness. And within the, our skin, within my skin, I don't get to plaster my credentials on my forehead. I don't get to tell an officer that, wait, I'm educated. I have a degree. I'm not here to hurt you. I'm not your enemy. Unfortunately, we don't get a chance to do that. We don't get to shed our black skin and all the bias that comes with living in this body. Every interaction matters because it's literally a matter of life and death. Each interaction is literally a matter of life and death. So when we think about Richard Brooks in Atlanta a few days ago, the conversation is not about the fact that there could have been many opportunities in a 45 minute exchange to do something different that would not have led to a murder. The conversation is about, can we justify? And how is this one different from George Floyd or Ahmaud Arbery? And well, this one is a little different. He didn't comply. That's not the conversation we hear when and if white America is ever in one of these situations. So if we take advantage of all benefits, what we want America to do is take her foot off of our neck figuratively and allow us to take advantage of one more benefit, which is the benefit of the doubt. When you talk about every interaction is about life and death, I don't think most people believe that. And I think when people can believe that, like when you take your children for a walk, when you go to the grocery store, that there are considerations that never have to cross the minds of others who are not Black. And that's where it starts, Amy. It starts with this notion of believing a truth that's different from your own. And if white America could just honor a truth that's different from their own, that's a heck of a starting point. So when you talk about this constant stressor that is real, I was on a chat the other day in a virtual show in which a panelist made a compelling argument that I had not even considered. She said, as an African-American female or as an African-American in the United States, 
you don't deal with post-traumatic stress disorder. You don't deal with PTSD. You deal with CTSD. Constant, constant instead of post. Constant traumatic stress disorder. Because to be black in these United States requires living under this constant level of stress. So as we narrow the focus to the education sector, you've talked a lot about white America and there is a large number of white educators out there, a large number of black educators. And not only are we in the middle of COVID, we're in the middle of radical, racial, what is hopefully transformation. What words do we have for those educators as we go into the summer break and into fall? Wow, COVID. That's a conversation that's easy to have as educators. How are we going to deliver instruction? Are we going to have a blended model? Are we going to be 100% virtual? Are we going to try to bring all the kids back and cross our fingers that nothing happens? That's an easy conversation to have. And this would be my words to educators. COVID has landed on your black and brown students differently than it landed on many of your white children. Your black families in this age of COVID from a statistical standpoint, have suffered way more than your white family. You're going to receive children in the fall who lost grandmas, granddads, and uncles, family friends, who them and their parents, they never got a chance to say their last goodbyes. So you're going to receive a segment of children that have had no closure. How do you show up as a teacher and be able to be that empathetic teacher that that child needs in that moment? The other thing as it relates to going back to school and COVID is young people are going to be hurting. The protests that we've seen on America's streets in these last several weeks, they land upon the body with a great deal of pain. How do I know? I know because I stood with children in Kansas City during those protests. And I saw kids that believed they were doing the right thing, but they were a little afraid because they saw me and they said, Dr. Carpenter, are you gonna be out here? One girl said, I'll never forget it. And I said, yes, I'll be out here. She said, thank you for being out here. And I saw her courage, but I also saw some of her fear. That doesn't go away easily. That doesn't go away easily. So how do you show up as a teacher, being ready to teach your children, but also being ready to learn from your children? What advice do you have for educators who do not have the words to talk about racism yet? It's okay not to have all of the words. And this is a hard space for, for white folks to sit in. And, and I'm going to be pretty candid here. In a system in these United States that has been so oppressive to black folks and people of color and for white folks to literally be trusted by society as the brain trust in all areas and we can't even get into the cultural appropriation that has come with that for years and years and years. You know, we can't even talk about Latimer and the light bulb never would have worked had Latimer not created the filament. 
that was in the bulb. So we know that even as white America has been charged with being the brain trust of our society, and they know the level of oppression that blacks have experienced, it's hard for them to show up in a space and not be the brain trust. So what I want to challenge our white educators in particular to be able to do in the fall is trust that you're not the authority in this area. And that's okay. And how do you show up in a way that you can hear the voice of African-Americans who have a lived expertise in this area? How do you show up in a way that you can hear the voice of African-Americans who have a lived expertise? Some of it's verified on paper through universities. Other times it's not. But be able to hear those voices and those lived experience. Because what I believe is so, so key to this conversation and it leading to a great, great shift is the ability for white folks to build stamina as it relates to hearing the voices of Black America. Because for too long, society has allowed herself to just dismiss, summarily dismiss those voices. So what I would challenge our folks to do as we move into the new year, build stamina in listening to, listening for understanding, not to respond to the African-American voice, whether it be validated on paper through a university or not, because these experiences are lived each and every day. I really love the idea of lived expertise and honoring lived expertise of Black America and honoring that as valuable, not only in this conversation, but just in general. I was talking with a team yesterday, and this was a predominantly white team preparing for school next year and talking about COVID reentry. And I was suggesting that they also actively develop their plan to be very vocal about the current racial transformation that is underway. They thought they might start by simply by calling colleagues to come in and talk. What do you think about that? That's a tricky one, Dr. McCart. And it's a tricky one because, once again, Black folks are tired. And every time we have to enter into a conversation to validate the why or to teach around the why. Understand that you're peeling away a piece of that person's protective armor. Every single time there's a chink being placed in the armor of the African-American. So when you talk about experts in this area, when you talk about consultants in this area, this is an emotionally draining piece of work. So that doesn't mean that that's not a part of the process. What it does mean is white America has to also do her own work. Is it a part of it? Yes. I would tell any organization to pause if you believe that that's your only strategy because the change we're looking for will only come by way of that being balanced and tempered with white America doing her own work. Because when white America has a book study about race, a black person is still living race. It's good. A good reminder that as a white educator, this narrative is not about me. I may not know what to say or do, 
but that feeling of discomfort and unknown is unparalleled to the, the tragedy, trauma, and pain that black educators are feeling. And so it's on me as a white educator to figure it out and not just turn and say, hey, could you come talk to my class or could you do this? I need to figure it out. I need to sit in my own discomfort and, and not knowing to move ahead. And when we think about this notion of equity and giving every person what they need in every situation, here's another thing that I would caution organizations about. As a black person who's been in many, many organizations, I know the feeling and I know my white colleagues know how to make a decision in isolation. I know they know how to come to a decision in isolation. I know they know how to study an issue without me because I've been on the outside of organizations and not been a part of their decision-making on many issues. So just like that has happened before in a negative way, that same energy can be harnessed in a positive way. So the equity in this is we may not need to be a part of all of your study. It's okay for you to go back into affinity and do some work. And if you need us with the lived experiences, with the collective expertise, we can be there and engage. But think about the fact that that conversation always lands on a black body with additional trauma. So it's okay for white America in the corporate sector or in a place called school to go to do some of their work in affinity. And that doesn't mean we don't want to be a part. It just means that we don't have to be a part and it's taxing always for us to be a part. And if it gets a little heavy and you want to rely on some of that brain trust that I talked about earlier, then your black colleagues and blacks in the community will be there. At this time, there may be individuals out there feeling like, what about us? In particular, I'm talking about our Latinx colleagues, our LGBTQIA colleagues and students, among many others who have experienced varying levels of trauma and concern over the years. How do they fit into this dialogue? The first thing that comes to mind is all lives matter. And in order for all lives to matter, black lives have to matter. And there are too many statistics, too many regressions that have landed upon black bodies with great harm. And there's too much disproportionality information out there to suggest the same. So I guess what I would say to those groups in the more candid sense is you can take any other group outside of black and when you intersect blackness you always find an even more negative experience within that group so when i think about lgbtqia and i think about trans deaths there's too much data showing that black bodies are bearing the brunt of that in a way that's disproportionate when i think about the african-american presence on u.s soil and significant numbers being here way before our Latinx brothers and sisters, by and large. And still, when I look at the data, their performance is beyond that of African-Americans. So it's not that those things don't matter. When we think about all lives matter or thinking about these other groups, the African-American house is literally on fire. And there's some sparks, there's some brush fires around many other groups. But what we're asking everyone to honor is, let's deal with this house that is engulfed in flames right now. And the black house is engulfed in flames. And let's get that under control. And then let's deal with some of the other brush fires in America. Because when you deal with the black experience, you're going to enhance outcomes for all of those other groups. Your words are important around black America in 
when you talk about disproportionality, we use that word a lot in education. But specifically, we have years and years of data showing higher numbers of Black students being expelled and suspended from school, higher numbers of Black students not graduating at similar rates to their colleagues. I could go on and on and on. But when we're talking about disproportionality, that's what you mean. Absolutely. It's time to change that. For real. I'm hearing you say what educators can do right now is do some learning, do some listening, and be an ally in this transformation for Black lives. No, I'm going to challenge one piece. I don't, I don't need any more allies. Dr. McCart, I don't need any more allies. I need co-conspirators. I need someone who is willing to utilize their power and their privilege to aid and change that will positively affect my life and that of my children and my future grandchildren. Because an ally can tell me, I'm thinking about you. An ally tells me things like, I see you. Allies tell me things like, you're right. Keep fighting the good fight. None of that helps me create systemic change. What helps me in creating systemic change is when allies graduate to becoming co-conspirators in this work, meaning that they're willing to utilize their influence and their power, and they're willing to risk something so that the lives of my children and my future grandchildren, and even my life, might be a little bit different. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. To go back to what you said earlier, this conversation doesn't come without additional pain and trauma on you. And so your willingness to step out here and share with our listeners your, your lived experiences, your lived expertise is incredibly helpful. I want to let people know that we have a great team of Black educators at the Swift Education Center, and we have issued a statement that Dr. Carpenter helped craft that I would like for him to read and share with you all. One of the things that Dr. Dennis has helped us realize is, I guess, in moving from that allyship to co-conspiratorship, it's got to be more than a statement. And so we're looking forward to what will become our year of work together, leading to five years to 10 years to 20 years of work to dismantle ineffective systems. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for creating this space. Oftentimes, these spaces, like I said, they land upon the body with great harm. But the hope is that this can be a space that leads to change for some and maybe create some healing for others. So thank you for creating the space. Thank you, Dennis. I can't tell you how much we appreciate your work in the world and your words. They are powerful and they help, they help make change happen. The Swift Education Center will not be silent about pervasive and systemic racism impacting Black students, families, and communities. Today, we deepen our commitment to dismantling inequitable and harmful educational systems and structures. We will actively and intentionally work with our partner schools to end the ingrained patterns of marginalization and disproportionality that harm students of color and their families. Today, more than ever, we embrace this imperative.